This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 5.11 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 5.11tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, 
Francisco Morales. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Colonel Carolyn Carroll. Now, Carolyn has an incredible story, not only her journey into the military, but flying helicopters all over the world, including in Desert Storm. So we discuss a host of topics from navigating prejudice in the military, leadership, training allied forces, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of over 660 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Colonel Carolyn Carroll. Enjoy. Carolyn, I want to start by saying thank you so, so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast today. You're welcome. I'm looking forward to it. So we were going to do this a few weeks ago, but you had no teeth. So <laughs> have you have you managed to kind of progress through that dental challenge? I do. That you had? <laughs> can you see now? I, I can, have teeth. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Aren't they great? <laughs> So yeah, I was talking to Tyler yesterday. So Tyler Carroll was one of my previous guests from the Dead Reckoning Collective. Um, and he, he in the closing question, he mentioned about the incredible career that you had. So I'm so glad that we were able to make this happen. So Thank where you. on planet Earth are we finding you today? I am in uh, central Texas. Uh, Kempner is a small town about 45 miles north of Austin. Sorry, I'm playing with this. My my computer's on. Okay, good. I have it level now. All right, brilliant. Well, I would love to start at the very beginning of your journey. I mean, you've got such an incredible career within the Army itself. But let's start at the very beginning. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Oh, well, that's an inter- interesting in itself. Um, so I was de- born in Des Moines, Iowa. And my... Um, my parents, um, great parents, loved me a lot, and I had one brother. They, uh, both of my parents had some issues. My father was an alcoholic, and my mother had mental health issues. So my mother was gone probably maybe a third of my childhood, uh, and she was institutionalized. And um, so, but, you know, it's interesting because I know in today's world, a lot of people blame failure on their childhood. Well, I didn't have this or I didn't have that. But, you know, at, at a couple of times during my life when I've had some um, emotional significant events and I've went to counseling for a short period of time. Uh, and, of course, they always ask the same thing about your childhood. And, and one of the comments I always make to a counselor or the two or three counselors I've talked to is that, you know, my parents loved me. I knew they had their own personal issues. I was not abused. I said, uh, you know, they were not always there, but that's okay. I mean, I understood that. Now, um, I skipped a couple of grades. 
when I was up until third grade, I was out of control. <laughs> and, you know, ADHD was not, you know, commonly talked about. I mean, I'm 68 years old. So, you know, that was not back then. It was kind of like, well, she's just ill-mannered. I mean, I couldn't even sit in my seat in the classroom. They were talking about holding me back. But so they did an IQ test and my IQ was 140. So um, they uh, that was third grade. So they actually allowed me to take fourth grade classes. And then by the time I was a sophomore in high school, um, my parents were both gone. My my mom was institutionalized again when I was a sophomore. I was about 14, 14 and a half. And uh, I say a half because I didn't just turn 14. But um, and my father stayed at his business. He owned a commercial trucking and refuse uh, service. So he, you know, he made sure the rent was paid, but basically, and my brother had already enlisted in the army. He was in Vietnam. So at 14 and a half, they tried to get me to stay at my aunt, my aunt's house, but, uh, and I had my own car at that age and I was driving back and forth to school and nobody knew it, but it was like 25 miles away. So anyway, the is interesting because I'll always remember my principal really liked me. He knew I lived alone, but he never reported me. So uh, so by the time I finished my sophomore year, they allowed me to take both my junior and senior year classes at the same time. So I would take like one first class period. Uh, well, let me back up. My school had seven class periods instead of the normal six back then. And so I had an early morning class, it was biology, and then I went to like 11th grade English, then I went to 12th grade English, then I went to 11th grade history, then I went to 12th grade history. So I graduated when I was 16. So then I thought I was all grown up. I'd already been on my own for a year and a half, and I decided I was going to get married. So, uh, and probably getting pregnant was one of those reasons that motivated me to get pregnant. I mean, <laughs> motivated me to get married. <laughs> That's a Freudian slip other, there. <laughs> yeah, I had other motivations for getting pregnant, right? <laughs> so, so, uh, so, yeah, by the time I graduated from high school, I was like, well, I was Tyler's mom and that I was caring. So I graduated the 1st of June and she was born in August. So, um, and then I worked, I did not have a successful marriage. No surprise. 16 year old marriages don't usually last long. My first husband was quite a bit older, but uh, so we got divorced and I decided I didn't, an old expression would, it used to be, you know, I don't want to, if you don't want to be poor, you don't want to scratch shit with the chickens. Right. So I used to say that all the time. So I'm not going to scratch shit with the chickens all my life. And I want my children to have those things that, that uh, I think they deserve or, you know, college, things like that. So, um, so I was 19 years old, divorced and had two children. Uh, and I was going to college full time nights from 7 p.m. to 10 p.m. And then I worked as an accountant. I worked as an auditor and an accountant, uh, a couple of different places like Farm Bureau Insurance Company. I was an auditor there for a while. And then I was an auditor at a hotel that was at nights and that fit my schedule better. Uh, so I worked from 11 at night to seven in the morning. And because it was at a hotel, the hotel allowed me to, in fact, they had hired me back. It was interesting. I had already been a manager 
at a retail store at 18. Uh, and they sold records and it was a head shop. There was a term back then for a shop that sold smoking paraphernalia. Now I didn't, I didn't take drugs, but anyway, so that was my, so a lot of those things to me, I look back now, I did a lot of gr- quote grown up things at a very young age. Cause I was 18 or 19. The hotel hired me back um, in because the store had me work like seven days a week. So it was very challenging. When I got back with the hotel, it allowed me to get at least two years of college in. And um, during that time, um, I, excuse me, I'm a little bit dry. During that time, I had applied to join the National Guard because I had became, uh, I had peritonitis, my appendix had ruptured, I didn't have health insurance, and then I found out that I couldn't get life insurance because of what happened. And so I thought, and somebody said, well, you know, if you join the National Guard, you can get life insurance. At that time, it was only 10000 I thought, oh, okay, that sounds great. So I was 20 by the time I joined the National Guard, and then um, they had an opening for a full-time person. So because I already had two years of college, I actually was allowed to enlist as a PF. C or E3. And then after my technical training, I was promoted to E4. By the time I had been in the Iowa National Guard for 11 months, myself and another soldier, we were allowed to go to their military academy, which was regional. It was Iowa Military Academy was well thought of back then. Because post-Vietnam War, there were still a lot of members in the National Guard, a lot of more in the Guard because they didn't want to go to war. And so they joined the National Guard or reserves and they didn't have to go to war. So we went to a basic NCO leadership course, myself and another female soldier. And there were like 220 people in the class. We were the only two females. Um, I was always from my childhood, I was always, I can do anything a man can do and I can do it better. But that's because I was a tomboy. I did a lot of sports, you know, at any time. And I was kind of small, weighed like a hundred pounds. I'm five foot four. And, you know, so I, I got, and I looked very young for my age. So, I mean, even at 68, I still look kind of young. So, uh, you know, I, they thought I was this little girl, right? So men were always like, you can't do that, you little girl. So I was always like, oh, you know, watch this kind of thing. So when I went to the NCO, excuse me, when I went to the NCO Academy, I won the land navigation. I was the first one out of 200 and some men, found all my points, ran through the woods, all that stuff. And then academics, of course, were real easy for me. Uh, and I was the top in that. And then in leadership and peer evaluations, they were really good. So the cadre and the other students, um, I was nominated to be the distinguished graduate. Initially, the sergeant major of the academy said, no, that's not possible. We cannot have a female be the distinguished graduate because we have men here that were in the Vietnam War. Well, that doesn't mean squat because some of them that were drafted and then stayed in the guard, I mean, they were there because they were drafted, not because they were necessarily the top soldiers and things like that. So the other female soldier, very nice lady, she was the secretary for the adjutant general. 
of the state. So she called her boss and said, sir, this is what happened. Carolyn was nominated a distinguished graduate, but they're saying she can't be awarded the, that distinction because she's a female. So, of course, he stopped that. Well, what came with the distinguished graduate was an automatic promotion to sergeant. So by 11 months in the military, I was already a sergeant. Interesting thing about that, and of course, that's in the 70s, right? Then they said, well, we can't have a female sergeant because she'd be in charge of man. <laughs> so, so they wanted to make me a specialist five instead of a buck sergeant or sergeant E5. Oh, we'll make her a spec five. And I was like, no, I... <laughs> I earned this, I deserve this, and I deserve my rank, right? So I made Sergeant E5, worked for the Guard for four or five years. By the time I went to two more uh, academies, and again, I made Distinguished Graduate in those, I, um, uh, and I made E7, and part of that was because promotion points let me back up. I was really lucky and maybe God had a role. Sometimes they say coincidences are God's winks, right? So there was an every promotion board in any state uh, in the National Guard must have an active duty representative. And what that's for is because they don't want states to, to do things that would be considered favoritism and not quite legal. So they always have, you know, kind of the oversight. So there's this active duty sergeant major who doesn't know, doesn't know me from, you know, from Adam, right? When my records went before the E7 board, they, uh, and I had the most promotion points. Part of it was I had college. My peers didn't have college at the time. Uh, and some of it was the recognitions and awards that I had received during my time in service. And so my E7 promotion board, I was the only person that did not, that had enough points to get promoted. So a promotion board has the, they had, they can award points to somebody that doesn't have enough points, it can award up to 200 points, at least back then. It could have changed by now. But I was the only one out of 20 plus records. I was the only one fully qualified. So, again, the board said, we can't promote a woman to seven above these men. And the active duty sergeant major said, I won't certify the board. She is the only soldier completely qualified. And if you don't promote her, you will not promote anybody from this board. So I got promoted to E7, applied to go to OCS because I thought, okay, I made E7. Now I got to be this for 10 years because of time, right? So I got to go do something else. So I was always reaching for that next, that next level. You know, what is my next goal? So I applied for OCS at Fort Benning. Now, the academy had declined in the quality of their teaching by that time. And I, because I worked full time, I did not want to go to the Iowa Military Academy because I didn't want to get any favoritism or I didn't want somebody to dislike me because of whether political reasons, you know, a lot of states have like any state or any organization, you know, you have certain in-house politics, right? So, and, and the number of people had declined to like 50 people. Well, 
at OCS, you get to learn to be a platoon leader and you're in charge of people, prepare you to be a company commander. So how do you command like 40 people or 50 people? You don't get, you can't possibly get those skills. So back up, OCS at Fort Benning, Georgia, the school for this infantry school, school for boys. I said, we don't want to send a girl to OCS. <laughs> so it took me about seven months to get through all the hurdles to get accepted. I had another thing too. Back then, women were not allowed to put their hair up. I had to have my hair was as short as yours. The longest hair on my head could not be any longer than two inches, and I could not have any hair on my neck. So I, my hair was below my waist at that time. So I cut off like three to four feet of hair, shaved my neck. I was going to go to OCS. Well, then I had to be, t- uh, I have t- Tyler, Tyler's mom is, uh, she's 51 now. And, uh, her sister is 49, and then I have a 42-year-old. So for seven years, I was told I couldn't get pregnant. And so I am taking my physicals, getting ready to go to OCS. And I had my physical on a Friday. I was supposed to fly the following Tuesday or Wednesday. And on Monday, I call, they called me and they said, you're not going. I said, why? They said, you're pregnant. I was at my office. I literally fainted. It's like, you know, you think that only happens in the movies. Nope. I fainted. I woke up. I was on the floor. I said, no way. I was very excited. Okay. But then because during my physical, I had all my immunizations. Back then, we still gave immunizations for um, uh, uh, smallpox. The one that leaves the mark on your arm, you know, okay, well, that's a live mark. I had that, but the vaccination I gave that I had for uh, uh, for smallpox, it's a live virus. So my baby died actually when I was five and a half months pregnant. So, which is another thing that kind of, you know, when I see all these abortion rules, my baby died, but I didn't lose the baby. So for about two and a half weeks after that, um, I finally, they finally took the baby Um but that was considered an abortion, even though the baby had died. So, but walking around that far along, I clearly looked pregnant, you know, and um, emotionally, it's very hard. So um, I know some states already um, are not allowing that, which is kind of sad because, you know, if you, you can hypothetically carry a dead baby till term, but emotionally think about that. I mean, especially if it's a baby, really, really, I mean, seven years, right. I really wanted this baby. And so I can't imagine having to carry the baby for another four months. And I call it the baby because I didn't want to know what it was. It had already started to reabsorb. So I was like, and, it, and they said it was not normal. The fetus was, and that was from that smallpox vaccination I had. So that virus, uh, uh, that that the the fetus was uh, was not normal. That's all they told me. It was wasn't really normal. So anyway, so I had I got the the doctor said if you want a baby you got to try again. So I did, and uh, I got Danielle, my third daughter. It is interesting because the people I worked with, and I was in an infantry brigade. They said. Uh, she got pregnant. She'll never go now. We don't have to worry about her ever applying again. Nope. 
As soon as I gave birth to that baby, I applied again. So, so when she was seven months old, I went off to Fort Benning. And, uh, and even when I went to OCS, so it was interesting, I had walk the most tours. Uh, if you're familiar with that, for punishment, they had you walk like on a, in a parking lot, right? You walk back and forth. You might have to walk like an hour or something. You march, you know, and, and you do all the stuff. Anyway, I had the most tours and the most demerits of the entire company of 200 and some soldiers. So, but I was recommended again as a distinguished graduate. But, and in my interview, they said, you know, how can, how can, and they're looking at my records, right? The board is. They said, how can somebody with the most punishments, demerits, and tours be recommended as our, our senior, as our leadership, you know, graduate? And, you know, and they said, how can you explain that? I said, well, if you're not out leading from the front, you don't make mistakes. So, you know, they, they like that, but uh, I didn't, I didn't, in that particular course, I didn't do my weapons as good, taking them apart, putting them back together. So they said, no, we're not going to let you be it. But that's okay. I still graduated because there were bets for three years prior to me going. Every year they would send anywhere from two to four men. So I think I was the third year. They had had nobody successfully complete the course for my state. No one. So they all took it for granted. Eh, she's a girl. She'll be, they'll send her back. She'll fail. Uh, nope. So I proved them wrong. I came back. And it's interesting. I was talking earlier about, um, you know, always thinking I could do things better. So I could do 25 pull-ups back then. So my upper body strength was always my strength, right? And there were very few men who could do that. So when we had to go into a dining facility, we had to do pull-ups. So, you know, I know it's something small, but it's something to keep in mind when you're looked at all the time, when you're the only one or the, you're one of few, everybody notices what you do, whether it's intentional or not. If you're, if you're a poor quality person, uh, employee or student, people, they all know it. You know, if you're a stud or stud at, everybody knows it just based on numbers. You know, there's a, there you have a thousand men somewhere and you're the only one of two women who, who pays attention to the 998 men, right? They're just a sea of men. I used to tell people that in formation, you know, I don't see faces. I see 500 uh, green things. And with you know, so anyway, so that's kind of how I got my commission. And then when I came back, I um, and I went to the quartermaster uh, course because my enlisted background was predominantly admin personnel or supply. But I wanted to be a pilot. So I was commissioned quartermaster officer. So my first year at Fort Eustis, Virginia, and I worked in supply. I'm like, shit am I going to do this for the next 20 years? Oh my God, just fucking shoot me, right? <laughs> now I'd already had by this time, back when I went to flight school, I already had four children, right? 
<laughs> I was like, so I applied and I went to flight school. So I was only had been a quartermaster officer just 18 months when I was allowed to go to flight school. And that's another time I had applied and got pregnant with my fourth daughter. And so, but they held my records for the next promotion board. So anyway, not promotion board, excuse me, selection board. And then I went to flight school. I think some of my more, I was thinking about this on what was, what was truly memorable, some, not memorable, but maybe some defining things in my career when I was younger. Um, So I think my, okay, when I went to flight school, back then, that was in 1983 when I started, and I finished in 84, because it's an 11-month course, and I was doing well. I was in the top five for a while. But, you know, it's interesting because when you're in the top, you always strive. You work your ass up. Oh, I got to be number one. I got to be number one. Well, then I didn't do so good on my weather test. And, but I had my kids with me, three of them anyway. Three of the four were with me. Probably didn't study as much as I should have. But once I got down into like 15 or 20, I was good. Then all the pressure was off. But so my husband, my ex-husband now, he came to visit me. And lo and behold, a few weeks later, I find I'm pregnant. So he threatened to divorce me if I didn't come home. I wanted me, he wanted, or if they found out and they wanted to, um, you know, recycle me to the next class. So I went to our publications library and I looked it up and there were no regulations about pregnant women because we didn't have that many at the time. We didn't have very many women pilots, right? So I was like, well, that's cool. So if nobody asked me, I won't be lying, right? So I finished flight school almost six months pregnant and nobody knew because, so as I started getting bigger, one, I was small. I tried to keep my weight down. But when I got bigger, I moved off post my last month. I was living on the base during flight school down at Fort Rucker, Alabama. So in my civilian clothes, a couple of neighbors had said, yeah, Carolyn, you're getting a little weight. So I, under the pretense of getting ready to move to my next assignment. So oh, I'm going to clear quarters or quarters and I'm going to move now. And then when I would go out to class, I would get my, I would always wear a jacket or I'd get my life vest on. So you couldn't really see my stomach, right? And uh, (laughs) so I think what really, it it got me in trouble later. I'll tell you that here in a second. But uh, so I graduated from flight school, five and a half months pregnant. And I had a flight physical the month before I left because it was my birth month. And they did not detect that I was pregnant. Now, when I was laying on the table and the doc's doing his exam, I mean, he's pushing that baby from one side to the other. And I'm watching his face, right? He does not blink an eye. I think he thought, well, this woman's had four kids. So you know what? She just probably got midriff bulge, you know? (laughs) So, but I pissed off the United States Army, generally, the flight school. And um, when I got to my next assignment, which was the test pilot course, mind you, they revoked my flying orders. So I ended up 
And actually, it was the school that was, they were embarrassed that they did not know. But the Department of the Army IG said, it doesn't matter. She did not miss. I did not miss a day of training. And I graduated still in the top half of my class. But I have a funny story about that. So here's my funny story. When being pregnant, I had to pee a lot, right? And I'm in a helicopter, which bounces up and down. So I'm flying, I think it was instruments. And it's late, it's like two, it was the second shift. So it's like two or three o'clock in the morning. And I got to pee. So, you know, a Huey is kind of fat. The body is, and then you have the tail boom. It's thinner. So usually if somebody had to pee, they'd go back to the beginning of the tail boom. So you're awake, you know, that way not everybody's seeing you. So I got to pee. We land at Mariana Airport, small airport in the middle of nowhere, right? So I very carefully take my flight gloves off because I have to manipulate zippers. I take my survival vest off and then flight, their coveralls. So it's not two-piece. So every time I pee, I got to take it all off, right? I unzip my coveralls. I put my sleeves in my lap so I won't so when I'm squatting, I don't pee on it, right? I go to stand up thinking, hey, I did pretty good. I got my gloves. I didn't piss on my uniform. I forget that my gloves are in my lap. I go to stand up and my gloves from the rotor wash, because it's the aircraft still running. They fly across the airfield. I, I dive after them. My flight suit's still down to my ankles. My bare ass is up in the air, right? And then another aircraft comes in to land and they got their landing light on. So my IP said, you cannot imagine, and the other aircraft crew later said, you cannot imagine the laughter when they see this pilot with her flight suits down to her ankles, kind of chasing on the ground, her freaking gloves, her bare ass being shined on by this landing light. I bet my IP when I got in, we didn't fly, take off for like five minutes. He was laughing so hard. He was laying back against the seat. So I was like, that was one of my most memorable experiences. Well, and another female thing. So let me say this up front. I never used my gender. If I had, if somebody mistreated me or did me wrong based on my gender, I made them do the right thing because it was the right thing, not because I was a girl. So I never went to anybody my entire career. I never filed an EO complaint ever. I had an instructor pilot in tactics, which is our last phase of flight school. And he uh, gave me a pink slip which means he wanted me to have a progressive ride, which is you have to have a check ride from somebody, a pilot from their standards office, which they're like, you know, they're like the best pilots and they set the standards. Why did he do that? He would ask me questions about tanks and about, you know, air defense equipment. And I did not always answer the question. So it wasn't necessarily my flying skills. It was my knowledge on uh, uh, tactics. So he said, he said, I shouldn't be a pilot. Now they gave me what they call a prog ride. And I got, um, got an 88, which is good. I mean, average check rides back then were high 80s, low 90s, you're a stud. Nobody ever gets 100, right? But And, and you fail if it's under 70. So I, I, I took this check ride, and when the pilot came back, I mean, they ended up 
um, doing a counseling against my instructor pilot because they said, the only reason you would have done that is because of her gender. He said, there was no indication her flying skills were not in her knowledge of the aircraft, were not, you know, uh, comparable to any other student at that level. So that was one of my first, you know, well, I had a first thing as, a, as an officer so about my gender. Then when I was in flight school, aviation became a combat arms branch. Before that, everybody that was an aviator, you could be an armor officer, you could be an infantry officer, quartermaster, transportation. So being a pilot was just an additional duty. But I started in September of 83 and in January 84, aviation became a branch. And the first thing they said is we need to kick all the women out because women can't be combat arms officer. So, you know, for the next like 30 years, I did, that was always a challenge because there were certain people that were senior or peers that would say, you know, as an aside, they'd say, I will do anything to get you out of the military because you're a woman. You do not belong here. So, you know, there were a lot of times I could have fought and filed complaints, but I didn't. Um, so I went on and um, went to went to back to Fort Eustis test pilot course. The academic phase at that time was 12 weeks. You had to learn systems for every helicopter we had. I graduated nine and a half months pregnant, and I was number two in the class, and I was the only female. So again, I was going to show everybody, right? But I mean, I like maintenance anyway. So, I, I, you know, it wasn't that hard for me. Then I went on to, uh, uh, I went to Alaska. Now, now I get into some of my skill set for dealing with men. Okay. That's kind of when I, I said, should say not dealing with men, dealing with um, men in the military who are going to be uh, assholes to you because you're female and treat you unfairly. I should, maybe that's better. I just want to jump in for a second because I just, I'm pulling this out. This is something that I hear as a theme over and over again. For every time there was a douche male, there were other men that were yeah. advocating the other way. And I think that's Absolutely. the problem with this issue is it's either all black or all white, you know, and, and I don't think that all men think that no woman should be a police officer, firefighter, military, and the same with the race issue, same with the sexual orientation issue, whatever it is. Yes. Usually the prejudice are the few, but they just tend to have massive fucking mouths. So they seem to get all the airtime. Where the reality is, I think most people don't have that bigoted you know, view on, on any kind of group of people. You're absolutely right. It is only a few. Although, let me add this. It might be a little bit more in some of the fields like police, firemen, and military. I would say you probably have more than the average civilian job because, you know, most civilian jobs that don't have a lot of men in them. I mean, you, you don't, you're just not going to see it as much. In fact, um, on my, uh, when I was on orders to go to Alaska. So because I have a daughter that has cerebral palsy and uh, she's in a wheelchair, I had to have special consideration for housing and schools everywhere I went. So they had to approve whatever uh, location, geographic location it was, they had to approve me before I got there. So I knew I was going to Alaska about six or, because I had to go to a school first. So it was probably eight months, probably eight months 
the commander had had one woman in his unit before. And back then, our aviation units were over 200 people, and the commanders were majors, and platoon leaders were captains. And he he was telling everybody he could in the personnel community, I don't want no fucking female pilot in my unit. Send her somewhere else. And we because and so I was hearing this. People would come up to me. Even I worked at an aviation school for a while, and they would see my name tags. Oh, you're the one that Major So and So doesn't want in his unit because you're a fucking female. <laughs> and, and you know, and I would repeat those exact words. You know, they would repeat them to me. They'd say them to me. I'd repeat them back. So. I arrived to Alaska, okay? He couldn't get my orders changed. I arrive up there and he's on leave. He gave orders to his senior pilots that gave me check rides. I bet they better be real hard on me because he didn't want me to pass. So I had initially, they have a contact instrument. And for me, because I was a test pilot, I had to have a maintenance test pilot ride. And then I had to have a pilot in command. So pilot in command, because back then, the aircraft we had, Hueys, 58s, Cobras, you could fly single pilot. So I might have a mechanic sit next to me, but not a pilot. So you had to be a little bit a cut above the average pilot. And in the Army, not so for the Air Force, but in the Army, so when a helicopter was broke, you know, if a pilot said, hey, you know, I have this, I hear this loud noise or the controls aren't right. The test pilot goes out and checks it out. And then we have different procedures that we put the aircraft through to push the limits, whether it's fuel control for the engine, you know, transmission. We do things to push the aircraft to the limit to see, to make sure it's operating correctly. So I had all these check rides and I passed. Oh my God. So the commander calls contact. I find this out from two to the pilots. He calls the senior pilot. He goes, Give them to her again. She can't possibly pass all those check rides. Somebody's got to fail her, right? <laughs> so I had them all again. Now, at that point, I could have complained, right? I could have said, hey, I'm being discriminated against. But no, I was like, fuck you guys. Watch this. You can give them to me 10 fucking times and I'll still pass them. So that was my attitude back then, right? And I said, <laughs> so... When he arrives back from leave, I put my, and I go in to meet him for the first time. I put my more, my dress uniform on, right? And I report to him and I said, Captain Carroll reporting, sir, I'm that fucking female pilot you didn't want. But I said, I am the best fucking maintenance officer in the army. And if you give me a chance, I will make sure that you are, you and this unit are successful. Now, it was a great relationship. He had me go every single field exercise. He goes, I take my maintenance officer everywhere with me. <laughs> so, you know, and I was out sleeping out in the snow and these itty bitty tents up in Alaska, all men, you know, stinky, smelly tents for like two weeks. And it's crazy. But at the end of the day, he gave me a great rating. And you know what? And he kept in contact with me for years. And what happened by me not running to someone and crying 
about it. With me proving that I could be, that I was just as good as any other pilot, I gained the respect of not only that commander, but the other people that, that I flew with. So I think that's what's really important that we don't, we don't tell that to our girls very much. We don't say, you know, fuck those people. You know, yes, they're discriminating against you, but you need to prove them wrong. You know, you need to show them you are as good as anybody else. And during that time when I was supposed to come up on orders for another location, when you mentioned a minute ago about there's a lot of men out there that do take care of you, I had an assignments officer. That's the person, I think the Navy calls them detailers. It's the person who gives you your assignment. He had me on, or he, let me back up. I was supposed to take a command of a unit that had fixed wing, had planes. I was three times I was on orders for a fixed wing, fixed wing transition. So, and they kept getting canceled. Well, they had to fill the command position. So the last time he canceled it, here's what he told me on the phone. He said, I canceled it because you don't belong in my branch. I would do anything to get rid of women and I would do everything I can to make sure you will never be successful. Now, I did go crying to one of my friends that worked at the vision personnel. And I said, how could he do this to me? <laughs> you know, I was like, oh my God, he's going to ruin my career. Should I, should I record him next time? And my friend said, no. Don't ever do that because then you are in the wrong. Don't ever put yourself in a position. It's the best advice I got. And he said, don't ever put yourself in a position where you are equally as wrong as he is. You know, so I never did that. The commanding general knew what he did. The branch chief knew what he did. And they relieved him from the desk. Now, did that get me the command? No. But what it did do, because he had jerked me around for almost a year, it was coming up. I was coming up to my time limit to get a command and to get one year of what we call degree completion. So I had never completely finished my bachelor's degree. And everywhere I moved, I kept taking classes. But, you know, when you try to transfer those to one college, you know, they're never all accepted. So the person that took his place, she called me up. She said, Carolyn. And she was another one too, by the way. She was a little bit ahead of me, but she was another little fireball, you know? So she kind of, she kind of paved the way for me a little bit. And uh, she said, I'm authorized to give you anything you want. I said, okay. I said, I want one year of college and then send me to a division. Okay. So I can get a command, right? More opportunities. So I went to Kansas State University, got my degree. And as I'm about halfway through, and they were talking about, or let me back up. The reason I went to Fort Riley at Kansas State, because I had to go to a location with a follow-on assignment. It's a college that was close to a major military base, right? And here's what she told me. Best, one, another one gave me the best advice. She said, don't go to 18th Airborne Corps. That's Fort Bragg, uh, Fort Drum, uh, in Fort Campbell, because she said that's the airborne air assault schools, a lot of heavy aviation. And she said West Point graduates or soldiers who have parents that are generals or 
you know, have a mentor, they go to those high speed places. And she said, you could be the best thing since peanut butter, but on paper, they will never put you above those people that they feel they have to take care of. So she said, if you go to Fort Riley or Fort Pope, nobody wants to go there. Right. So she said, I bet you'll get to command twice. In fact, I did. And she was right. So I finished school at Kansas state and, uh, and actually, when I went to sign in, my brigade commander, again, I walk in, I said, you know, I'm going to, you know, here's me. I sign in in a couple months, right? And I get to hear for the next 50 minutes how great he is. All these things that he did in about the last 10 minutes, he tells me he's got a single male parent that's never at work. He's always taken off. And he doesn't want another because I was a single parent at that time. He did not want another officer to deal. He just wanted to make sure I knew where I stood. Oh, I said, well, sir, I said, when I finally had an opportunity to speak, I said, do you know, I said, I was sent here because I need a command. And I said, I'm not going to be on your staff. I'm not going to be an assistant to anybody. I'm a senior captain. And, you know, thank you for the time. But when I leave here, I'm going to go home and I'm going to call Department of the Army, HRC, and I'm going to tell them to send me somewhere else because you don't need me. I said, I've been in the Army by now. I've been in, you know, 20 years almost total time. And I said, I've been a single parent for a lot of time. I know how to manage my family and I would not be where I'm at today if I didn't make those arrangements. So I'm not some rock that you're going to have to put up with. I said, I have a lot to offer to the right command. And clearly, this isn't the right command. Thank you, sir. And I left. By the time I got home, my oldest daughter, again, Tyler's mom, she calls me out and she goes, mom, don't call the army yet. You need to call the, S, the personnel officer at the brigade. He's called like three times. And he said, as soon as your mom walks in the door, don't let her make a phone call until she calls me. So <laughs> I called him and he said, yeah, after he goes, evidently you made a great impression on the colonel. So you're going to go be the XO of his company so you can be in line for a, a command. So, yeah, I mean, you know, there's just been so many off and on experiences experiences like that. But almost every assignment came, I mean, like that. Like my husband now, Howard is a retired Green Beret, right? So like they didn't have a lot of women uh, as they do now, but he's like, you know, it's if you'd been married to me, you don't want to file a complaint. No, that's not what gets you where you need to be, you know, because you're not allowed to prove yourself. As soon as you put in a complaint, whether it's an EO complaint or a command complaint, you've just set yourself off to the side. You know, you've ostracized yourself from all your peers. Nobody wants to be around you because they're afraid you might tell on them. And you don't get that opportunity to, 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 uh, to prove yourself. And after that, I mean, you know, I signed in. I had to go to another military course. I came back. I deployed to Desert Storm. And... I came back and I took, in, in fact, interesting, the commander, the aviation brigade commander wanted to have the first female attack battalion commander, company commander. So he wanted me to do that. Well, one of my peers who was supposed to take that command, he was going to swap him with the assault company. So commander, anyway, I said, we went to him. I said, no, I said, because they're not really ready for women in the attack 
Italian yet. And it won't allow me to do as good a job as I could. So I went to, I got him to switch it. So he didn't have his first attack battalion company commander, but the company I took had, um, uh, had a lot of problems and uh, coming back from desert storm, I commanded there for 20 months. And then I came out of command and um, I worked on our brigade staff for about 60 days. And then another commander for a major's command was relieved and they put me in that command. So I commanded three years, two different companies. So I got a reputation as being a fixer. And when I was, uh, when I was in that first company for two years, we had the highest operational readiness rate uh, in the army. So they sent the department of the IG out to see what we were doing and, you know, to, to get some guidance, I guess. But anyway, so we weren't doing anything wrong. And that kind of followed me because then I, when I was in that second command, again, I had an assignments officer said, you don't need to be in my branch. And he was going to pull me out of command at like 90 days, right? And send me to, as a staff officer to Timbuktu. But anyway, and I said, you can't do that because on my records, it will look like I screwed up, right? So, because you took me out of command at 90 days. Oh, you can recover. No. So, I went, I, I complained to everybody above me. I said, they, and they thought it was a joke. They really didn't think that they were going to put me on orders. Even the division commanders like Carolyn, they would never do that. Who would do that? Who would pull somebody out of command and send them to a staff job? So they kind of poo-pooed it off. And, and in the rebuttal letter, all they did was put disapprove. They didn't write any comments. So when the orders came to the 1st Infantry Division, the G1 said disapprove, not send me. But they were going to do it anyway. And what was funny is my ex-husband was working for a general at Fort Leavenworth. His wife and I were friends. And she asked, he asked in the hallway, how's Carolyn doing? And, and Joe said, well, as a matter of fact, General, let me tell you what's going on. He also thought it was a joke. So he got involved and they called. And they relieved the assignments officer again. And I didn't go to Korea. They said, okay, but when you come out of command of general staff college, so I've had that command for a year and I went to uh, command of general staff college. They said, when you get out, you're going to Korea. That's okay. So I was supposed to go to Korea to be a staff officer and do my staff time. That department of the IG inspector, he was a commander there. And when he found out I was inbound, he goes, oh, I'm going to put her in command again. So I took another command for a year. So, I mean, all that was really good. And uh, from there, I went on to, um, you, uh, I, went, flew, I went to Operational Test Command that uh, owned the Russian aircraft. I was at an operational flying slot. So I got to be, I got to transition to fly Russian helicopters. That was cool. At that time, I was the only woman doing that. My boss got in a little bit of trouble. But, you know, after the word got out that, oh, we got a female pilot flying Russian aircraft. And that was all special forces stuff, you know. So uh, and then I thought when I went the other probably major event was when I got selected for battalion command because, (laughs) again, they wanted me there on Fort Hood to take command. There were three commands available in the 1st Cavalry Division. And my branch said, uh, we don't want a woman commanding in the 1st Cav. 
because they'd already had one woman command in aviation, I should say, because they had support battalion commanders. And uh, I guess they didn't think she did very good. But they put me. So I actually had a bet with uh, our division, General Cody. He was uh, assistant division commander, 4th Infantry Division. So we were at a some type of military social. I goes, Carolyn, I hear the command list is going to come out soon. I said, yeah. I said, sir, he goes, we'll put you, we'll make sure you're in the first calf. We command the first calf. That's the best place for you with your background, right? And I said, no, sir, I can guarantee you aviation branch is going to try to put me at a schoolhouse or somewhere that is not a divisional command. So it goes, bullshit. That ain't going to happen, not with your record. Oh, yeah, sir. So he was due to go to Washington, D.C. the next week. And so we made a beer bet and uh, he went there and he came back and he goes, you're right. He goes, he goes, he wouldn't tell me my exact position. They do a um, they put on a battalion command list list. They have like one through 20. So like the most qualified, you know, and I know I was in the top three. And so what happened was I ran into a gentleman uh, he was an intel officer. He didn't know me. This was right shortly after I got selected. And I did get selected in the, in, for the 1st Cavalry Division. I commanded the 615th Aviation Support Battalion. But he said he was the person, like I want to say the proctor, who was p- uh, uh, presenting the command list to the chief of staff of the Army, right? And when they, he goes, they put your picture on this big screen, right? Covers a whole wall. Put my picture up there. And they knew I had a, a daughter with disabilities. And when they said they were going to send me, I think they were going to send me to, I don't know, Europe for some maintenance company, a maintenance battalion or repair facility. And the chief of staff said, what are you doing? And this is coming from this person who had was running the board. He said, she's your one or two or three choice. And why wouldn't you put her in the first cab division because of her background and because of her family members? You have to explain this to me because I'm not going to approve this. So he said they literally had to stop the board and the aviation branch had to go away and come back and, t- and be, the, be prepared to tell the chief of staff of the army why they were going to do this or, or give me a command in the first cab division. So that's how I, so it's interesting that all that stuff has happened and it continued till almost when I left. I had a, my last memorable experience was the, I was commanding that battalion and you have a maintenance battalion commander has two bosses. You have uh, a support command who's your, you know, supply quartermaster kind of logistics support. He's your boss, but you're supporting either, you know, armor or aviation. You're supporting a maneuver commander, right? So my two commanders didn't like each other. The two 06s that I worked for did not like each other. Neither one of them particularly liked me either. But uh, so I had the support commander threaten to, um, he said, I will make, he wanted to set up the aviation brigade commander, but he needed things from me. He needed me to say things and he needed me to, to provide some documents to set this guy up. Cause he was like, oh, he, he, you know, we were in like a, 
uh, tactic, uh, operations center. And his commander like had me up against the wall doing the finger on the chest thing. He goes, if you don't do this, I'll make sure you never get promoted. But, you know, so that's on Friday. And I thought about it all weekends. Fuck him. You know what? I, I got to do the right thing. So I went to the aviation brigade commander. This is what's going down, sir. And you know what? To his credit, he did not. Nobody ever directly told the commander, the, my commander, the other guy, the bad guy. Nobody ever directly told him that I said anything. They just canceled the meeting and the CG, the commanding general refused to see him. But he did impact that colonel impacted me later. And he convinced somebody who was my raider to give me a mediocre uh, rating report. So I didn't, I got selected the first look for our war college, which is at that time, maybe 20% of your year group gets selected. So somebody thought I was in the top 20% or whatever of the officers and my peers. And I didn't get promoted to 06. Everybody was surprised to include the United States Army. It turned out I was the only Lieutenant Colonel, that was a primary selectee for the war college and did not get picked up for 06. There were other battalion commanders that didn't get picked up, but they were not war college selectees. So I had that distinction of being the only one in the Army that that happened to, but they said, hey, you can still go. You were appointed, you were selected. So I did go for a couple of years after that. I had academic reports, so I didn't have a, a, a report card. And then my fourth look, my last look, I was in Afghanistan and I worked for a general that I'd worked for before. And uh, that was the first report card that they had seen from my first look. And I got picked up so anyway that was i think that's it yeah so man you've retired as a full bird colonel is that right i did yes yeah so that's quite so, a journey from a 16 year old pregnant wife to uh <laughs> retiring yes. out the other side yes so that's was kind of my journey i think um you know, as a as a battalion commander, one of I, I, we mentioned this when we talked before. One of the things that I had over a hundred women, and what I used to do is get my women together with senior other senior female NCOs, and we'd have a talk, and uh, we would talk about those things. We'd talk about sexual harassment. We'd talk about sexual assault, and um, I, I think it was good because I never had any assaults my two years in command. But, and what I would tell the girls, first of all, I would say, if a senior, if somebody's senior to you, you know, is harassing you, they want to get in your pants and they won't leave you alone and they're scaring you, you know, like you won't get promoted or I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that. I said, what you do is you wait till you can get them alone. You don't want to humiliate somebody publicly because then the guy will come after you for revenge, right? But I said, you get them alone. And you say, listen, if you don't leave me alone, I will fuck you up. You know, I will ruin your life. I'll ruin your career. I'll call your wife. I'll tell the commander. So you better leave me the fuck alone. Now, you better be, it's hard. I will tell you, I thought about this a lot after we talked. It is hard initially to do that. When you're a young woman, you 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 are intimidated by age, position. It is hard. I compare it to the rape uh, prevention classes I went to as like a 20-year-old. One of the things they would tell you, if a man's raping you, right, 
you caress his face. You put your hands on each side of his face and you stick his thumb, your thumbs in his eyes and you pop his eyeballs out. Now, they would tell you, once you go for that, you got to be able to complete that action. He's probably going to kill you, right? So, you know, that's kind of like standing up to somebody senior to you the first time. You better be able to to be strong when you do that. Because it really isn't as easy as just saying it, you know? Um, it was, so that, and so telling them and explaining to them to stick up for themselves, don't put yourself in a position where you're alone, you know, and don't put yourself in a position where, uh, don't do it publicly because you don't want him to come after you. And the other thing is, <clears throat> I said, what's he going to do? Is he going to come to his commander and say, well, she went and fuck me. So I'm going to file a complaint. You know, I said, there's nothing they can do to you. And then I said, the other thing, if you go to bed with some man, right? Because you get a lot of, you get a lot of both. You have a lot of bad people in the army, especially since the war. So I'm going to digress for a second. Our sexual assaults on both young men and women just went out of the roof. Why? Because people who like violence and people who like to hurt people or kill, when you have a war, I mean, what that, that's like their playground, right? You know, I'm going to join the army so I can go kill people, or I'm going to join the army so I can go rape somebody, whether it's a male or female, because male rapes were really high during the Iraq war. So there are war attracts bad people, but what, but the other thing that happens sometimes is you get a young girl that she gets drunk, she's embarrassed, she goes to bed with some guy. I mean, you know, a lot of men out there, right? And so, and then they wake up and like, oh my God, what I do? Or one of the girlfriends will say, girl, did you go to bed with that guy last night? Did you sleep with him? He's so ugly. You know, it's like, I said, don't come to me. Or somebody said, oh, he, he raped me or he forced me. Suck it up. Learn from your mistakes. Don't get drunk around a bunch of men, you know, unless you can handle yourself. And I said, because remember, every man out there is somebody's father, son, or brother. And if you wouldn't want that to happen to your father or brother, then don't do it to somebody else's. But I also said that about girls during one of my staff's courses when I was a senior captain. The groups were supposed to be of all the different branches, but the group I was in, for some reason, it was kind of a leftover. So they had mostly combat arms, like two infantry guys, two field artillery. We had a female officer in there that was not, they should have never sent her to the course. She wasn't a very good officer. She might've been a good technical person, but anyway, she couldn't do push-ups. She couldn't do any setups. She couldn't turn her homework in on time. So anyway, the class started harassing me and uh, I said the same thing to them. I actually got into a fight. Uh, I had an infantry officer start giving me shit and the instructor wasn't in there and we were yelling at each other across some tables. And one of the officers said, you need to take it outside. This guy is over six foot tall. I was so mad. I walked around the table and we got chest to chest. I looked right up at him. I said, yeah, let's take it outside, motherfucker. I'm going to kick your fucking ass. So anyway, so about that time, they broke us apart and somebody told on me, right? Said, Caroline's going to pick up fight with this other guy. And I told this uh, person that Lieutenant Colonel in charge of our group, I said, you're the one who precipitated this. 
I said, because every time I had something of value to add, you disrespected me, you disregarded me. And that that was the tone of the other students. And then when I went back, when he was, because this one he was telling me he was going to kick me out, you can kick me out, but let me tell you something before you do. So then when I went back to the classes, I'm going to tell all you cocksuckers this. Sorry, excuse me, but I did say that at the time. I said, let me tell you something. Every woman that I said that you see in the army is somebody's sister. That's their daughter. Would you want somebody to talk to your daughter or your wife like you're talking to me? Really? And, you know, it got quiet in there. They were like, I had a couple of men afterwards said, you know, I never thought of it that way. And, you know, to their credit, we graduated a couple of weeks later. And I mean, you know, they all got around me. The other girl didn't make it. They failed her, sent her home. And they all got around me. They gave me a dozen roses. And they saying that you lost that loving feeling, you know, so. <laughs> yeah, so. <laughs> So, yeah, so, you know, we don't always put it in terms like that of men and women, that every soldier and every first line person, you know, police and firemen, every woman he worked with is somebody's is somebody's mom, sister or daughter. You know, and if you wouldn't want them treated just based on their gender. I mean, you know, there's going to be bad females anywhere, but just like there's bad men. Right. But, you know, if you're picking on them solely because they're a woman, just remember, that could be would you want some man, you know, treating your daughter like that. Yeah. Well, I've talked about this a lot on here. The fire service is such a great example of where the only prejudice should be because when we're wearing all our gear in a smoky building mm -hmm. you can't tell if someone's gay straight black white you know male female whatever you can just tell if they can or if they can't which is the only thing that actually matters on the battlefield on you know on the fire ground and that is the you know that's where i wish we could focus all our energy because we're also diluting the harassment um, field and so that amongst that white noise some people are you know really really suffering and we're seeing suicides and right. some of these things right but when everyone's crying wolf or or you know getting away with being a complete dickhead right. to other people we're missing our men and women who are truly hurting whether they've been truly sexually yeah. attacked whether they're yeah. you know suicidal and so going back to holding that bar, holding that standard high, and whether you're male, female, gay, straight, black, white, you know, whatever, mm -hmm. whatever kind of division, pigeonhole we want to put ourselves in, if you can meet that operational standard that should be, you know, the I mean, the fire service is a great example. We have ladders, we have hoes, we have dummies. I mean, they're all very, very standard. If you can meet it, fantastic. If you can't, you can't. And so your gender or any of those things should be irrelevant. If you set that bar high and, and invite men and women to reach that bar and be proud of reaching that bar, mm -hmm. that to me is what, you know, that shared suffering is what pulls people together. But if you have no standard and then you have this kind of broken up culture that invites all this bitching and whining and division and labeling, that's, you know, we, whether it's the fire service or America at the moment, what do you end up if you have a Trump or a Biden with no fucking leadership skills whatsoever? You end up with people divided in each other's throats instead Absolutely. of people unified. And, you know, uh, talking about people who really are hurt, is that the white noise that we haven't given that female soldier the skills to handle that? Because when that becomes so important and the basis of all our sexual harassment is based on a look or some suggestions, 
then those women or gays or whoever who is truly getting harassed, sometimes maybe physically, you know, has physically been assaulted, maybe not sexually, but beat up. And I mean, there are a lot of different assaults or, uh, you know, somebody who has just had something, that, you know, like go on social media and spread a lot of lies, those sort of things that really hurt people and might cause somebody to be suicidal. But if somebody's suicidal because somebody looked at them differently or looked at them leery, you know, you could use the word leering, you know, they leered at me or they do, you know, that to me is a little bit of white noise, you know, teach the women, you know, give them not just an avenue to file sexual harassment, but whether it's through counseling or whether it's through training, you know, role playing is great opportunities for training, you know, because you learn from other people what they would say, you know, and I think we did do that at one time in the military, and I don't know if they still do, but um, giving those young girls some of those tools, because if they haven't been around a location that has hundreds, if not thousands of men, you know, they might not they might not be emotionally mature enough yet or been taught how do you handle this sort of situations. And then they either become suicidal over something that's really kind of minor, you know, and we do lose focus on those people who really do need some assistance. Yeah, well, absolutely, especially when you're in a profession where men and women are integrated. So in the fire station, for example, we have men and women sleeping in the same dorms. And mm-hmm. there is a lot of, you know, um, riding each other. I don't mean that physically. I mean that with, you know, with words, um, you know, and so you get this kind of anti-hazing conversation when it's not hazing, when it's making, I mean, you always say if, if you want to know if you're not loved in the fire service, that no one talks to you. If they're making fun of you, that means they like you. And if no exactly. one's talking to you, then that that's a bad sign. And so yeah. there's a difference between like one place I worked at, they supposedly, before I was there, because people would end up with their jaws broken, but supposedly they were putting pen lights in people's, you know, anuses. I'm like, well, that, you want to see a murder? You'll see a fucking murder. You're trying to do that to me. But that was yeah. what they were doing. That's hazing. That's sexual yeah. assault. But that's yeah. not making fun of someone or strapping the rookie down on the backboard and emptying the contents of the fridge on them or you know all these things that, that I've seen that are part of the initiation, that are not yeah. physically harming. They're not humiliating even because we've all kind of been through it. But there is that line. So also creating that landscape where it's okay to rib each other a little bit, but only yeah. if it's coming from a place of love and not a place of hatred. Yes. We had in Desert Storm, we were very integrated. And then they had to during uh, OIF and OEF, particularly in OIF in Iraq, we had, you know, of course it went on for a long time and, you know, you started getting a lot of pretty violent assaults. And, um, but I had one of my men come to me and said, man, you need to put those girls somewhere, talk to them. So there were two girls in a platoon. So they took a big tent, right? And they put canvas up, right? And, uh, but before they put the canvas up, I think it was the day before, one of the girls, and she was funny as shit anyway, she got, she was like, oh, she one of the boys and she got ready for bed that night. She took her t-shirt off and she had huge boobs. And the men were like, oh! <laughs> I said, Ma'am, you got to move her. You got to talk to her. We can't take that every night. We don't want to see somebody else's tits <laughs> all the time. You know, it affects us. So, you know, I had to talk with her. They put the canvas up, you know, and so, you know, but, and we were talking when I was a battalion commander. So my exo, 
I had a, a black male XO. I had a black sergeant major and I had a white S3. We all slept in the same tent. So we were talking one night and, and I don't know, I think it was my ex says, you know, ma'am, if this was back in the seventies, can you imagine what, or if it wasn't you, that was one of the things, if this wasn't you, what do you think people would say about a white woman sleeping in a small tent with three men? It, they'd go crazy, but I'm not a I'm not approachable like that, you know, because it was me. Nobody would think anything of it. You know, like, oh, she probably kicked her ass, you know, <laughs> they said or did anything to her. But you can't in an environment where your close quarters, probably similar to fire departments. When you work with somebody every day, you sleep in the same tent, you sleep in the same room with them. You got to be, you might not love them like a brother or sister, but you at least got to be friends with them. You know what I'm saying? You got to be able to go to work. Cause if you don't like them going to work every day, just sucks, you know? So uh, we don't have a lot of that anymore. You know, we don't have a lot of that integration. And again, part of that is recognizing that war has its consequences on attracting psychotics, people with a psychotic behavior. And I mean, I'm not talking a little bit. I'm talking about pretty heinous, you know, like beating, you know, like uh, the girls that would go smoke a cigarette outside the latrine. We had these big T walls in Iraq and some men, bad men that would watch them. And, and nine times out of 10, it might be somebody they know. It's not usually typically somebody they actually work with on a day-to-day basis, but it is somebody usually that knows who they are. They wait somewhere in the darkness and then they, you know, hit them over the head with a weapon, you know, rape them. Or if they come around and they just kill them you know, or beat them. We had a, a, a string of assaults on men a lot right after we stopped going to Iraq. Um, we had a, a senior NCO went to a sports bar on a Sunday, right? His wife went to clean the house. She said, get out of here. You know? So he goes to the bar and somebody had slipped him some drugs. He wakes up in a town about 26 miles away in his own truck and he is naked and he had been brutally sodomized with an object. So, you know, that's that you, you didn't see that kind of stuff, you know, before we go to war, but it, there were a lot, I sat on a lot of um, trials where there was just some real, a lot of violence that came out of that. And, you know, and I, when I worked at the recruiting command, they kept some statistics of that sort of thing. I mean, the male on male violence got real, real, took a big rise, but again, um, you know, you can hide that kind of stuff when you're in war, you know, it's easier to do and not get caught, you know, depending on what you do, where your location's at, you know, it's a fluid geographical locations, you're moving, you know, uh, and that's not what your focus is. Your focus is on, you know, on war, which brings me to another point. There's not a lot of women, you know, we, as recruiters, we always like to highlight, oh, you need to join the army because you can get a good education. They'll pay for your school. You can get good benefits, housing, you get, you know, healthcare, you get all this stuff, right? But what we don't, what we're not very good at is why do you join the army? Well, you got to kill. You might have to kill people. You're going to get shot at and you're going to have to kill people. If you don't think it's in your if it's not within you, whether you're a man or woman to kill somebody, then you shouldn't join the army or Marines. So, yeah, I agree. I think even with the fire service, I mean, you know, you look at firstly some of the, the, the horrendous things that we have to see also 
a lot of the 911 abuse that you're going to have to run on, the the work week. I mean, a lot of these things just aren't told to our recruits, you know, and then you they're not really given the tools to, to process that, process the seat deprivation and, and the mental health stuff. And so we're we're kind of setting our our young men and women up for for failure because they go in thinking you know backdraft Kurt Russell and then they get into it and they're like okay this is not it and I've watched you know young firefighters that that um, train at my CrossFit gym that weren't firefighters when I knew them and have entered this this profession are only you know five six years deep into the into the the job and i've seen it break them down now i'm out on the outside and i have these fresh eyes again i've watched them just you know be crushing and talking to their partners you know it's the same thing they're reporting so yeah i mean we have to you're absolutely right it can't just be some shiny object promotional video with rock music we have to give them you know the raw kind of uh the raw side of it like yeah you might end up pushing papers your whole career or you might find yourself in afghanistan holding a rifle mm-hmm. surrounded by ied explosions mm-hmm. i think one of the harder things for you you, you know having uh i think the hardest thing for me would be as a fireman that we don't have to do as soldiers at least unless you're right in a war zone is trying to save somebody and watching them die because you can't get to them. You know, I've I've seen that, and that bothered me more than anything. I think emotionally, uh, you have to be prepared to to know that you can't save anybody. I mean, it's bad enough to see some dead bodies, right? I mean, those are memories you can't always get away from. But to watch somebody die up close and personal because you can't get to them and you can't save them no matter how hard you tried. I think that is, that's harder to come to terms with later because there's a part of you that always blames you. Like, you know, could I have been faster? Could I have been stronger? Um, Even something as simple as we do, we used to do rollover drills and there's up armored Humvees. There's a place in uh, El Paso, a Fort Bliss that doesn't. So they put you in there and they roll this Humvee. You don't know which door is gonna be unlocked. These doors are like a hundred pounds. It turned out it was my door that was unlocked. I am upside down. And I am at that point, I was, let's say, I would have been in my 60s, I think. I was right at about 60, I think, or 61. I couldn't get the door open. I couldn't get it open with my strength being upside down. I cut myself loose. I tried with everything I could. What bothered me, and so I was telling my husband, I said, what? What if I was the cause of people dying? Because my door was unlocked and we went over and went into water and I couldn't get the door open. I said, you know, I I said, had I gotten this particular job, which I didn't, because he said, you know, there's a lot of men that can't get the doors open either. I said, I get that, but I'm not them. You know, I said, it doesn't matter how many other people can't get that door open. If it comes to me not getting the door open. So I told him, I said, if I go, I had to do a lot of upper body strength. I was determined even at 60 years old, that I was not going to go somewhere and not be able to be in the condition I needed to be in to save people because I'm, because I'm weak, physically weak, you know? So I think that whether, you know, obviously in wartime, we see that soldiers don't see, excuse me, typically soldiers aren't going to see that, not like firemen. So every fire you go to, potentially you're going to see somebody dead or have to save somebody. I think that would be really hard. 
Yeah, no, it is. And that's something I talk about a lot, the inability to save, even if it's not actually in the fire. It's, it's the medical stuff that we do, as Tyler's told you. You know, I mean, there's so many times where, and again, you want to talk about setting someone up for failure. You go to EMT and medic school and you do this, you know, you you put the AED on their chest or the monitor, you know, and you you do compressions and you, you bag them and you shock them. And then, okay, good job. You just, they've coming around now. And the reality is that hardly ever happens. It didn't happen in, in my whole 14 years. And I've talked about this a lot. I never saved someone from a cardiac arrest. I was just that, that kind of black cloud that everyone that I had that was in full arrest had some sort of disease process that you couldn't couldn't pull them back out of and it is it's hard because for 14 years you know it didn't go the way that you were taught in school so it is it right. is a tough thing to deal with yes yeah it would be well i want to hit one more area before i let you go um i know that that incredible military career you actually transitioned out and then continued to, to contract and teach. So talk to me about your transition from the military and then what made you, as you were saying, later in life, still go not not just in the US, but go overseas and continue to teach in, in combat zones. Well, uh, it was kind of by chance. Um, when I retired, my ex-husband left me the month I retired and I was like, holy shit. I need to get a job. I didn't have enough money, right? So, and I didn't see it coming. So I retired in October 2011. So by January, I got my first job in Uganda. Now, again, it wasn't just my gender. It was my rank because the training. So what do I do? So let me back up. What is the preponderance of the training I've done since I retired? And got my first job January 2012. From that point to April 2020, I worked in 10 different countries as a foreign service advisor or a program manager that oversaw uh, an advising and training mission or a, a site lead that oversaw maintenance being done on aircraft. So what countries was I in? So my first one was Uganda. They didn't want a female colonel. <laughs> Because retired colonels have a reputation for being lazy. Like, oh, they're used to having a secretary do all their work. But, you know, I, th I credit probably my work ethic to probably being a mom, number one, and having a, you know, always work for, we had, had six kids total, and then we adopted a young man. So we have seven total. And, um, uh, it, it, you know, so my work ethic was didn't matter what rank I was, you know, and how I treat people didn't matter what rank because I didn't grow a brain. When I went from PFC and made it all the way to Colonel, I probably was not as smart even as I was as a PFC. I think as we age, especially when you drink, you know, you probably kill some brain cells along the way. Right. So anyway. I doubt that I would have got a 140 on it. I, in fact, I did take an IQ test in my 50s, and it wasn't 140. It was only like 129. So I get it. But anyway, so back to what I did. I went to Uganda, and I was a, a, a trainer. I taught. So let me back up. In Africa, we don't like, we don't like to, although we have soldiers there, the U.S. government and the people in America probably would not want their soldiers killed in Africa, you know, because the questions would be, why are we there? Well, why are we there? When, when there is violence in a country, you know, that always spills out, whether it's Osama bin Laden who went to Afghanistan to train all his people, right? He was Saudi, but what, what was his ground? Where was his terrorist training groups, right? 
<clears throat> so when the population says, why are we doing this in other countries? There really are legitimate reasons to protect America for us not to let countries become a terrorist group, you know, or training ground because those terrorists want to come kill us. This is the way we did. So uh, Somali, Somalia, excuse me, Mali, Sudan. Um, These are some of the areas they've had violence, DRC. So when coalition forces, excuse me, or other African countries go in and maybe you have three or four countries there, the, the United Nations or NATO, they want them to have kind of a common operations center. So, and there's certain things at the UN for peacekeeping missions, like you can't go in and rape the women, you know, this sort of thing. So those are the kind of classes we train them. And so everybody has the same operating picture. So if I'm, whether I'm in Uganda, Burundi, Kenya, Rwanda, those are all some countries that uh, support Somalia. If I go into Somalia and I have a sector, I know who I can contact. I know how their operations center works. You know, so, so that's what I taught. I taught staffs. Now, African countries, almost all of them have a lot of women, too. I, a lot of the women there are really good soldiers. You know, there is culturally, I mean, if you if people have an image of like the woman with the baby tied to her back working out in the field. Yeah. African women in most countries, and remember, Africa is a continent. We don't always see it that way. We see it as a country, but the women are very hardworking. They can be excellent soldiers. There is still a hierarchy that prevents them, depending what country it is. They have their challenges, too, on getting promoted for different reasons, maybe than what we have. So I went to Uganda. I was there for about six months. And then I went to Iraq and I was a trainer for their staffs. And, and that was an interesting thing. I, I wanted to get a full-time job because Uganda was part-time jobs. So I get this email and it's not, I'm sorry. They, they really thought they had this job for me, right? As an aviation advisor and trainer. So my number two daughter, who is brilliant, not that all my kids aren't brilliant, but my number two daughter has a reputation in the family for being anal and detail-oriented, right? So she calls me up, she goes, Mom, did you read the whole email when I got rejected? I said, no. She goes, about four emails down, the program manager said, oh, yeah, Colonel's got a great resume, but I don't want any females here. Oh, We've heard that before. (laughs) Yeah, so all I had to do was tell the hiring guy. Oh, that was the guy in Iraq, the guy here in the States. I sent him a note. I said, you do know Iraq's got some women soldiers now. And don't you think it would be really good for a retired female, all sex to be somewhat of a mentor, you know, and he looked down there. So another person at corporations, they called, they called both hiring people and said, we're going to give you a chance to save this company, probably a million dollars on an EO complaint. So you find her a space. I think the only thing that really offended me was they were going to hire a captain who got out after like eight years in the military over an aviator who had 26 years in aviation. Like what the fuck? So I went to Iraq and then from Iraq, I went directly to, I didn't even come home. I went from Iraq directly to Afghanistan and, um, and, and there I was a train, I was an advisor to a couple people and a general officer. And then I replaced the program manager when he left. So I was there for, 
mm, two years in Afghanistan and I needed to leave because I got real frustrated. We don't always report accurate information in Afghanistan. And, you know, they took a lot of our money and it went for, you know, warlords and drug pushers and things like that. So anyway, I was fed up. I left Afghanistan. I came home and then I worked in 2015. I went to Burundi twice. In fact, I was in Burundi and I got sent home the day before the coup back in 2015 because I hurt my neck riding in a vehicle. So anyway, they sent me home and the coup happened the next day. So it was probably good timing, right? And uh, I uh, so I was in Burundi twice. I went to Rwanda, love Rwanda. I went there a couple of times. I went to Niger. I've been in Niger twice, Senegal twice. Um, and then I got a, another full-time job in Kuwait. I hated it. It was because it was real boring. It was tedious and I wasn't challenged. I was there for 90 days. And I got a call from a recruiter and said, hey, I heard you're a really good maintenance supervisor. So I had the opportunity to go to Tunisia. I was there for a year and a half and I oversaw the uh, refurbishment of the F5s in Tunisia. Tunisia is probably one of, if not my favorite country in, on the African country a continent, excuse me. So I was there for a year and a half. And then I went from there to Cameroon. I know I was in Cameroon as the, I was one of the first um, embedded. When we say embedded, I rode and I worked with and trained and I could say slept with, but I slept at the same fobs uh, with the Cameroon Air Force. It was one of the best jobs. I love the people in Tunisia. I love the culture. I have a lot of girlfriends there, but for jobs, my job in Cameroon was the best job I had. Um, And then when the pandemic hit, they wanted me to come home. I said, no, I'm safer here, but I was already over 65. And so the Department of State wanted everybody to come home that was older in case you did get sick, you know? So uh, I came home and then... I was home for a year, had a lot of operations, and then I started hitting the list again, got calls. I went back to Niger for a few weeks, went to Uganda. I loved the mission in Uganda. I was training um, female engagement teams. So you get into a lot of different cultural aspects and, you know, information you can find out from other women that you can't get from men. Um, An interesting one interesting point in Somalia. So when we're talking about the female engagement teams, and this could be all, they might not do this anymore, you know, but back in 2012, 2013, after action reports, culturally, the men in Somalia do not believe a woman lies. Isn't that cool? So when they would, I know, right? We don't lie and they trust women. So there is this outstanding female captain in the Uganda military. When she was with a team that was engaging with a village elder, she would do most of the talking because he would, and he told him, because I believe what she has to say. I don't want to hear from you. So, uh, so yeah, certain, certain things. That's what I did. So I went to, Let's see, the three, Iraq, the three big ones, Iraq, Kuwait, Afghanistan. And then I worked in uh, Burundi, Burundi, Uganda, Rwanda, Tunisia, Senegal, Niger, and Cameroon. So, yeah, that's what I've been doing. And one last gender thing about working in Africa. So 
I would get these contractors that were supporting equipment, right? And they would come in. And I got to where I had to talk to the program manager. Some of them were so scared. It's kind of like, oh my God, are these guys going to like eat me? Cannibals or some shit? <laughs> so I had somebody call me one night. It was raining really hard. And uh, they were really scared. So, so I asked them, I said, they said, hey, C2, that's my nickname. It's raining here. It's really. And he goes, yeah, but it's raining really hard. And they were up by Lake Chad Basin. I was down in the Capitol in Yonde. And uh, he, I said, are you scared? He goes, well, yes. <laughs> I said, okay. So I had to call the base commander so I could go get him because he was scared. So I got to where I would, when people would send people over, I said, please don't send men that are sissies. I said, nobody's going <laughs> to, we don't have cannibals in Cameroon. And then some of them would use me as an example when their men would complain, said they were scared. They see that C2 running around there, an old 65 year old woman running around Africa, riding with the soldiers and flying with them. And you're telling me as a grown ass man, you're scared to go stay at a hotel. <laughs> So, so, yep, that's what I did. I met so many great people and I had so many great opportunities. So, again, you know, maybe God looked out for me a little bit and uh, uh, gave me a lot of great opportunities. So that's what I've been doing since I've been retired is traveling around the world, mainly in Africa. Beautiful. Well, just what you said about the, the female soldiers, I think, was it Idi Amin that his closest guard were all women? You might be right. I think because I, I watched that there was a show called uh, Becoming a Tyrant and it had Saddam and, you know, Kim Jong-il and, and I think it was Idi Amin. And he, again, whether it was a cultural trust thing or what, but yeah, all his closest, you know, special forces guards were all women. You know, he still had a big impact even after he was gone from that country in Uganda. But yes. And, and you know, so Ugandan female soldiers are real strong. Cameroon female soldiers are, but you know, it's interesting. I think it, I was reading an, an article and I saw a YouTube video and I think it's in DRC that they have an all female guard group. I think they're either being trained by the Australians or the UK to help protect the elephants. Okay. And they tried for a few years to solicit men to do this job, but what happened is all the men were easily corrupted. So if I wanted to get a, an ivory tusk, I'd just pay off, you know, Joe's, Joe Smith down the road, right? The women, in fact, they were interviewing them. She goes, they would go to the men and say, you know, you might be my brother, but if you touch my innocent elephants, I will kill you. I will kill you. You know, they have no problem. They took great pride. I think they created that unit maybe four years ago. But the, the gentleman that does the training, again, I don't remember if he's from Australia or the UK, but they take a lot of pride. And some of the women and culturally, I mean, you still get that in many of the African countries where the women are, you know, beneath the men. But um and then sometimes you have cultures that where it's very matriarch, you know, matriarchal. But um, but when you give a female, typically, okay, not all, but when you give an African female uh, a job to do, it will be done really well. And yeah, they don't have problems with cutting you up. You break the law, I kill you. <laughs> 
know, <laughs> so yeah, I love, I love where I love, I really do very much enjoy working with both men and women on the African continent, but particularly the women, because they all, um, depending where, what, what country and what tribe, they are all typically very strong. You know what? Other women are really strong. It would surprise most people. Tunisia. Now, Tunisia is a Muslim country. Senegal is also a Muslim country, but the women are very strong. They're very, um, they're well-educated. Um, they, they have rights. Uh, they're very proud, you know, they're, and, and it doesn't take away from their marriage, their being a wife and being being proud of being a wife and taking care of their husband, because culturally that is what they do, you know, and taking care of their children. So they take as much pride in being the taking care, taking care of their spouse and their children and equally being a great you know, professional, whatever. So yeah, not, they don't, they don't have the little, what you're calling the white noise. You don't see that in the militaries in Africa. You, you really don't. They, they do, the women pretty much do. They either accept the fact that they need a mentor, you know, somebody to help them go up the line, or they're going to prove they're that much better than the men. So kind of like, they're more like I am than they are, than you don't get the little, because I mean, sex on in the Af- on the African continent is not as thought of the same way as we think of it here. Because it's a very natural kind of thing. I mean, that first peace support operation group that I taught, the women were like, seriously, we can't have sex for six months? Like, C2, would you go with that six months without sex? <laughs> <laughs> you know, that was coming from the women, not just the men. You know, it's like, really? Nobody does that. <laughs> you wouldn't hear that, you know, in the U.S. You wouldn't hear an American like, you want me to go to Iraq for a year and not have sex? What the hell, you know? <laughs> well, speaking with that lens, just one more area before we kind of close out. You have got to see women of different faiths from, you know, all over the world. But it seems like you got to see a lot of Muslim women. You got yeah. all the way from what one would, would deem as extremism views through an Islam lens when it comes to the Taliban, you know, t- as teachings, not even that really, is instructions, um, all the way through to, as you're, as you're talking about, some very empowered independent strong women, but of the same faith. So what are you seeing as far as the the spectrum of Islam from one extreme to the other? You know, it is, um, let's use Afghanistan as one extreme. Because, you know, under the Taliban rule, even before we got there, they were very, very, you know, put down. I mean, you know, when I was there, I've been there three times. In the first time, 2005, you know, there were issues with, you know, an old man, 50 years old, he could walk down the street. If, back then, if you did not have a burqa on, which not all the little girls did, and you decided you wanted some woman, you just took her. And, you know, there was an incident of we it was one of the NGO groups. Uh, the neighbors turned in this man. He had gotten bought a five-year-old girl and she was chained up had been for like two years to a dog house. And at one point she was the housekeeper for the rest of the family too. He had a wife and kids. She cleaned the house. They didn't let her eat a lot. And she, they found out she got loose one time and he poured boiling water on her. So let's fast forward. Americans get there. 
I think one of the foolish things that we do as Americans and probably as a Western society in general, although I will say this, I think other countries, um, other Muslim countries, and maybe even in Europe, they're more sensitive to what I'm going to say than we are in America. So American women, they want to go in and free all the women, right? Give them rights. They don't have to wear a burqa, blah, 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 blah. Well, let's see, because you still have men, right, that will take a woman and their culture, if they see a woman and they have and they rape her, now the family has to give her to that man or they have to kill her. They have to kill her. Think about that. She gets raped and her punishment is she has to stay with her rapist or her family has to kill her. So that burqa almost becomes a safety net for her. Because even when we were there and things were getting modernized, most women, like college students, you would never want your daughter to be alone. You'd always want her to be in a group of four or five because you don't want that to happen to your daughter. So that burqa, so an American female might say, oh, you don't have to wear that burqa anymore. Well, yeah, I did. I don't want, but I don't want to be killed or I don't want to be raped. The other thing I saw is that like we laud the success of women and it, and it puts them at risk. So a female police officer, she arrested in front page of the, it was either People Magazine or Time. This was back in 2000. It was the year I came back. It might've been 2007. They put her on the front page of a magazine. Why did they put her on there? Because some American reporters started to be real good to say how successful she was, what a strong person. She went into a home where a man had been beating his wife and children, and she arrested him and took him away. Well, guess what? About four or five days later, after that article came out, she was dead. And that's exactly So what do we do as Americans when we go in and we try to modernize a culture that's had years of of women being treated subordinate or like animals in some cases? And we think that we can just impose our thoughts, ideas, and Westernism on them without putting them at risk. So the NGO people that are there, are much more sensitive to that. That's why I was saying, you know, whether they're Africans or whether they're, I'll mention that in a minute, or Europeans, NGOs are typically more, more attuned to that. The Afghan women are strong women. I mean, unless if they're educated at all, they love education. It's like, you know, it's like uh, Malia, is that the one from Pakistan? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, why was she attacked? Because she stood up and said they, the Taliban representative wanted all the girls to get off the bus. Oh, in fact, even when I was there, they had a teacher who was teaching a male, teaching children. You know what they did? Women. They, he had women, girls in his classroom. They gave him a night letter the night before. Either you stop, we'll kill you. So the next day he had his classroom with both boys and girls in there. So they drug him out. They brought his family to the school and they decapitated him in front of his children and the classmates. So can we really come in and change a society like that? It's challenging. You know, this is just my opinion now. When the Soviets went into Afghanistan, you know, they killed people that were trying to go to a mosque and they attacked Islam. But one of the things they did good, they made the country secular. 
Okay. Women didn't wear a hijab. The women wore dresses, but they forced that. They were cruel. You know, they forced it. Sometimes in cultures, democracy doesn't do well. Had they not actually started attacking the mosque or the people or attacking Islam, they probably would have been successful because they had businesses. I mean, you know, Afghanistan at one point was secular and they had beautiful, you know, they had a lot of businesses, a beautiful country. And, and then it was, so it was when the radical uh, Islamic people came in, which was during the Soviet Union, you know, so um, Tunisia, um, Tunisia, there are parts that there are parts that are more secular than others. You know, it is a Muslim country. The women are um, they have a, a high they have a low rate of divorce. You know why? I had a couple of my friends tell me this. So if you divorce, if a Tunisian divorces his wife, he has to pay her 50 percent of his pay the rest of his life. He has to take care of her. So you know what? They're going to think twice. So, so one man said, oh, yeah, we we don't divorce our wives here. We have we have a black relationship or, you know, undercover relationship, you know, and a really good friend of mine. She's a very in fact, we're still real good friends. First time I talked to her about, she goes, oh, yeah, my husband never divorced me. I'd get everything. I'd take everything from him. <laughs> so, you know, they work. So, uh, you know, it is, uh, it's just very interesting. You know, there are a certain number of people that, you know, are just like anywhere where they're more strict religious wise, but pre- I mean, predominantly Tunisia. I mean, and Tunisians love Tunisia. That's interesting. You know, they had the Arab Spring started there, right? But you didn't have a mass exodus of Tunisians. If you look at like Libya, some of the other Egypt, you know, when the Arab Spring went through those countries, you know, uh, a lot of people left the countries, but, you know, Tunisia's and they're a very educated society, both males and females, you know. So, yeah, um, I very much enjoyed, enjoyed that. Brilliant. So, well, well, thank you so much. I mean, it's been such an amazing conversation from you know, your own journey through the military and, and the work that you've done since and, and you know, the, the perspective, the woman's perspective within, you know, the, the organizations of this country, but also what you're seeing you know, in, for example, Islam. So I want to thank you so much. It's been an incredible conversation. I'm so glad that we, we sat down. I'm so glad that you got your teeth. and you know i was trying to you know i was trying to think hit the highlights i mean i am 68 you know and i have been on my own since i was 14 and a half so i mean and my life has been very full so it's kind of hard to say okay what can i say that's important in an hour what do i really want to convey you know so you know when you ask me well let's start at the beginning i was like holy shit i wasn't expecting that you know (laughs) But, you know, it does. I think one of the things that it did for me, you know, not having my parents around as much um, as as the average child. And and I did as a single parent. I had, you know, I had probably what some would consider a rough life. But I think that built character. You know, I think uh, it prepared me for a lot of things and later in life, how to handle them. You know, I was always 
you know, like I said, I was always that person you didn't want to mess with because I would take you on. When you when you carry yourself like that, you know, there are not a lot of people who, who mess with you. And I think my childhood helped me with that. You know, the challenge is how do you pass that on to your children without giving them the same hard lessons? You know, so my children, like Tyler's mom, sometimes when they all get together, they talk about all the innovative punishments I used to come up with when they were growing up, you know, and all the things I made them do. But, you know, I'm very proud of all my children. You know, they're all very successful in the things they do. They're all great people. But yeah, I think that's a challenge in America is we, we need to, it's hard to not spoil our kids, right. And to teach them those hard lessons without like kicking them out of the house, which I did do that too. But it was after they were 18. Like you want to, you want to be a smart mouth. You could do that with somebody else. And it's not easy. You know, a lot of parents aren't going to do that. So yeah, I think that probably helped me uh, with that start. So thank you for inviting me on your podcast. Um, and hopefully some words of wisdom will help somebody at some point in time or they'll just get enjoyed listening to it, right? <laughs>